Hebrews 4, verse 11. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray together. Lord, unveil your truth to our hearts. Write it on our hearts, now and forever. In this be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Here's a truth that is totally foreign to our culture. You can't just hop and skip into the presence of God. In fact, you can't come at all without a mediator. Oh, no, 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 no. We're American. We can do what we want. We don't like to take no for an answer, and somehow, some way, we can get the job done. Well, that works in so many arenas, so many ways that does work. We're resourceful people. We're determined. We have skills. We have clout. We have power. We have money. With enough willpower, we can get the job done. Nothing is impossible for us, so we think. We got to the moon. Uh, we can get to God. That's the mentality. Well, NASA may have been to the moon, but I know of no plans for man to have a space mission to the sun. Uh, it's just too hot. There's no way there's going to be a landing mission anytime soon. And the message of the Bible is this. God dwells in unapproachable light. That's 1 Timothy 6, verse 16. He dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has ever seen or can see. One of the English translations reads as this. He lives in unapproachable light. He lives in light, another translation says, so brilliant that no human can approach him. Think of this. God chose the Jews to be his special people, the chosen people, his covenant people. Romans chapter 3 verse 1 reads this way, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? And here's the answer. Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. God entrusted the Jews with the scriptures, what we call the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And he gave them to that group, to that people, and to no other group. They were his special treasure. They are his people. And God gave 
the Jews his law as the way to approach him. And yet, here's, here's the message. Even with them, no one just waltzed their way into the presence of God. No one just came on their terms, on their initiative. No, a thousand times no. Even though the Jews were his chosen people, only one man, think of it, only one man once a year went into the immediate presence of God. The high priest, think about that. So, they're the chosen people, but only one gets to come into the presence of God. And God set that system up with his people. Think about that. One man was the representative of the people of Israel, the high priest. And he had to do things the prescribed way, or else he's not coming back alive. When he went into the tabernacle, he went through the ornate ceremony of cleansing and then going through to the holy place and then to the holy holies and making sacrifice. He couldn't just do what he wanted. He had to be prepared. He had to be sanctified first and then offer a sacrifice for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. So even when it's God who set all of these things up, God says only one once a year. And the Jews knew this. They, uh, through the sacrificial system, had this drilled into them. You can't just do what you want when it comes to God. The only approach to God is on his terms. And that meant there was a desperate need for a qualified, authorized priest. Now, we don't think that way as Westerners. We don't think that way as Americans. But that's the message of the Bible. And that's the message of Hebrews. We are not permitted to make our own way to God. He has described and prescribed the way of approach. We need an authorized priest, and we need an authorized sacrifice. Now, try selling that in America when we think we can do what we want with God. And God says, don't do it, don't do it, don't try to get to God, to myself, on your terms. But the message of the Bible is there's a high priest. There's a great high priest. And there is a sacrifice that appeases God's wrath and satisfies the demands of holy justice. All of that seems entirely un-American. I don't need that. I got my pipe. I've got my way to the mountain. I'll just sit on the rock. I'll do things my way. I'll make up my own God if I want to. And the U.S. Constitution gives us the legal right to be heretics. It does. You can believe any silly thing you like and not be prosecuted according to the law. At least that's the law on the books right now. But God never authorized us to say, you can do what you like in approaching me. The U.S. Constitution allows for that. I thank God for the freedom of religion we have. I really do. It protects us, it protects those who are heretics, they can do things their way without fear of prosecution, but we should all be fearing the fact that we're standing before a holy God who says, this is the way you'll approach me and nothing else. It's un-American to think the way we think and yet have this Bible in our hands that says something different. 
So what does the Bible say? Well, as early as Genesis chapter 3, when man sinned, God stepped in to clothe Adam and Eve, if you remember, and it meant the slaying of an animal in their place. Instead of them dying right there on the spot, God obviously killed an animal and clothed Adam and Eve in that garden. That's amazing. God took the initiative, didn't have to. He clothed the fallen rebels by the means of their substitute. Instead of them dying, something died in their place. And again, as Americans, we think that's just a little extreme, isn't it? If that's a thought that goes through our minds, it shows how much we don't know about God and His holiness. What should amaze us is not that someone or something had to die, but that God would make provision for man at all. It should stun us. Fast forward to the function of the priest in the Old Testament. His assignment, his job was to bring people to God. That's what he did. And he represented the people to God and brought those he represented into God's presence without being consumed. The high priest in Israel, one of the things that he had to do was wear the 12 jewels that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. There was nothing for the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Moabites. It was the people of Israel, the chosen people of God. And as their representative, he went in with the sacrifice on their behalf into the presence of God. Jesus is the high priest. And we've already heard in our hearing today, John chapter 17, which is often referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And he does the exact same thing. He says, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those you gave me. And as the representative of the people of God, he went into the presence of God. Didn't have to commit uh, the sacrifice for his sin because he was sinless. But he did present himself as the offering. So he was the high priest and the offering. But he fulfilled all the types and shadows of the Old Testament high priest. And we think, well, that's interesting. That's, that's nice. But as non-Jewish people, we don't get the weight of this. This is amazing stuff right here. God did this. God became a man to become a high priest who would represent man before a holy God. The Son of God became the Son of Man that the sons of men might become the sons of God. It's mind-blowing. But the message is still there. Don't ever try to enter God's presence by another means. You'll die. So, here's the message of the Bible. You and I, we, cannot get to God without a divinely authorized priest who makes a divinely authorized sacrifice on our behalf. Let me say that again. It's so vital we get this. We cannot get to God without a divinely authorized priest who makes a divinely authorized sacrifice on our behalf. Now, those are things we should know, but God is so gracious that even little children can enter the kingdom of God, and by believing in Jesus, they get to the Father. They may not understand the function of a priest, but when they come to Jesus, he is functioning as a priest on their behalf. That's the point. Once we understand this, scriptures that we've known for years come alive. They may have been black and white. Now they become full color in our understanding. When we understand who Jesus is, what he's done, we'll understand familiar phrases in scripture in technicolor. How about this one? 
I am the way. The way where? To the Father. I am the way for you to get to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he comes to the Father through Jesus as Jesus functions as high priest. We may not get that as Gentiles. We may not get that as Americans, but as people being taught the Bible, that's what's taking place. We come to Jesus. He functions for us as the great high priest on our behalf. He represented us and brought the atoning sacrifice for sin. John 17, he says, I'm not just praying for these, but for those who will hear my word. And so we, if we believe the word, are in receptivity. We're receiving the benefits of Jesus' prayer. By the way, just an aside, he prays for unity, that we might be one. And that, I don't believe, is referring to all of us on planet Earth being of the same denomination, meeting in the same building. I believe, how about you, God answers Jesus' prayers. Jesus said in many different places, I know you always hear me. Not that I hear you and I say no. He hears Jesus on earth in his incarnate stance, and he hears with the view to answering the prayers. And I believe Jesus' prayer for unity has been answered. How so? Not that we're all under the same roof. You know, you can have a lot of people under this wide roof and there's a lot of infighting going on. If you were to go and just inquire of the Roman Catholic Church, they may be under one roof, but the squabbles going on are immense. But I can meet anyone in any part of the world and have done so from England and Europe to Mongolia and India and China, and I've met Christians there, and there's an immediate unity we have when we find out we're brothers and sisters in Christ. It doesn't matter what denomination we have. As one little girl said to her mother, which abomination do I belong to? <laughs> These names we leave on planet Earth. I don't believe there'll be a Lutheran service in heaven or an Anglican. I, just, I think we'll all be Jews and Gentiles in the same service. There won't be an early service or a late service or a contemporary service. And those who like, you know, the hymns. You know, if the Brazilians are there, there's going to be a little bit of a beat going on. And you will be saying, um, this is not reform. And, <laughs> but you'll be joy joining in the, the throngs of heaven. But we are one. Christians are one. And that's why the Bible says, maintain the unity of the faith. It doesn't say try to get it. You've got a photocopier. Once you have it in your house or in the, the business you've got to then maintain it. And the fact that you're called upon to maintain it means you've already got it. We have unity in Christ. Maintain it. That's the message. That's an aside, but let's go back as we look at Hebrews. Hebrews is going to make this abundantly clear. I thank God for the book of Hebrews. It's a delight and joy to preach through this amazing epistle. You know what an epistle is? It's the wife of an apostle. No, it's simply a letter. But the starting point for all true religion is an acknowledgement of the real problem. And that's where most miss it in terms of religion. If we fail to see our real problem, not only will we not appreciate the solution, but we'll come up with wrong answers to the questions we're asking. Let's go keep your place in Hebrews. Go to the book of Job. 
Job was written, scholars believe, around the time that Abraham was alive. It was the earliest book of our Bible written. Many believe that. And so as we find in Scripture, there's an unfolding revelation. We call it progressive revelation. What is meant by that is we know some things in Genesis 1, but we will learn more as we read Genesis 2, 3, 4, and all the way through to the book of Revelation. There's an unfolding revelation that God gives us in His Word. And Job, being the earliest book of our Bible, outlined the problem. Job chapter 9, look in verse 32. Job 9 Verse 32, talking of God, he said this, For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter, there is no daysman, the old King James, I believe, says. There's no mediator, there's no arbiter between us who may lay his hand on us both. Now, in a few short words there, he's outlined the problem. Job is saying this, I've got to go to court with God, I know, because I've sinned against him. He's a judge, and judges function in law courts. And there's no one who's going to mediate my case before him. There's no one who can identify with me as a man and also identify with God as God. The job of a mediator, and we need a mediator, and he says... Look, he says, uh, there's no mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. That means to fully identify, to lay hands, means to fully identify with both parties. There's no one who's man and God. Well, he didn't know what we have come to know through the Bible. There is such a one. Someone who can fully represent both parties. Notice the problem i got no one who can mediate between us. And here's the job of a mediator, to reconcile, to, what's the word? Estranged parties. That's the job of a mediator. And here's the wonderful message of the Bible. Jesus is the one and only mediator, and he does not fail in his mediation ever. He reconciles all those he represented by his cross. It's stunning. And that's the message of Hebrews. I could get excited, but I'm in church. Job didn't understand what the further revelation of the scripture would unveil, but And here's the but. He did know that God would find the solution. He'd find the answer to the problem he stated in chapter 9. Go to chapter 19. Job chapter 19, verse 25. He knew the problem, and he knew God would make the solution. Job 19, verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last... He will stand upon the earth. There's one coming who's going to redeem me. He's my redeemer. He's coming. I don't know how he's going to do it. I can't pass the theological exam yet. He hasn't come yet, but I know he will. There's coming a day, and he's going to stand on planet earth. 
And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. It's beautiful. He knew his Redeemer would come. God would find a way. Job knew that. He rejoiced in the coming Redeemer. The revelation of the Bible is that he has come, this one who is truly God and truly man. On the cross, he was able to lay his hand on God as God and lay his hand on man as man and reconcile us to God. As we turn to Hebrews again, we recognize a number of things. One of them is this. It's the only book in the New Testament that refers to Jesus as a priest. I don't know if you've ever realized that. If we were without the book of Hebrews, we would have very little in the way of the concept of Jesus and his priesthood, but that's what Hebrews reveals to us. There are descriptions of Christ in his priestly ministry and his priestly activity outside of Hebrews. Do you remember in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah 53 verse 12 reads like this, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He bears their sins. He makes intercession. That's the job of the high priest. So there are priestly statements outside of Hebrews. John chapter 17 is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's actually the same day as the crucifixion because it was night time and Jews rendered their day starting about 6 p.m. So on the night of the crucifixion, he prayed John 17 as we have come to know it. And then the next morning and afternoon, he was certainly there under trial, scourge, and then crucified for us. Think of this in Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge, verse 33, against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Remember this now. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Again, the function of a high priest, intercession. Died for us, raised for us, is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. How about this one? 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. There is one God, and there is one mediator. There's the actual term. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. It's not Muhammad, it's not Mary, it's not Confucius, it's not Joseph Smith, it's Jesus Christ, the only mediator, the only authorized mediator, priest. As we focus now on verse 14 in Hebrews 4, we need to see the connection between the verses that have preceded it. Verses 12 and 13 have outlined living for the Word of God is. The Word of God is living and active. It's able to penetrate the hardest of heart. It gets to the issue. And everything is exposed. Everything's naked to Him, the Word of God. What a message. As you read verses 12 and 13, we realize as we come under the sound of the word, we're laid open, we're laid bare, our sins are exposed. We are not comforted by that. Sword of the Spirit has done surgery on our heart to open up our hearts to show us our sin and our desperate need of a Savior. We're naked before him. Our sin is exposed. 
There's nowhere to hide. And now we see why we are in desperate need of verse 14. If all we had were verses 12 and 13, we'd say, all right, the Word of God, it tells us our problem and everything's naked and we've got to give an account to God and there's no place to hide. But verse 14 is the comfort. See that? But we have a great high priest. Since then, we have a great high priest. A great high priest. That's exactly what we need when we're exposed. Our sin is exposed. We realize we're sinners. None of us have lived like Jesus. You might say, well, I'm good compared to this guy. Let me say it in ways we can understand. Who wants to be the best sinner who goes to hell? We've come short of the glory of God. Well, we've all sinned. Yeah, we've all sinned. Realize the immensity of that, the weight of that. We're in desperate need of a high priest. A desperate need. Because the only way we're coming into God's presence is on His terms, His way, by His authorized sacrifice. That's the only way. That's been the way since the Garden of Eden. Only by Him. Only by His prescription. Martin Luther, commenting on verse 14, says, After terrifying us, the apostle now comforts us. I love that. Verse 14 is the conclusion of the writer's argument, which started in, well, really, chapter 1, verse 1, but especially this warning from chapter 3, verse 7, through to chapter 4, verse 13. And here's the conclusion. And what verse 14 does is introduce us to the rest of the book of Hebrews. Now hear this. I've started by saying the idea of priesthood is kind of un-American, but that's where Hebrews is going to take us for a long, long time from now. The end of chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. The primary focus is on Jesus as high priest. We could be over a year looking at this. Every bit will be worthwhile. Chapters 4 at the end right through to chapter 10 is all about Jesus in the invisible realm, which is why Hebrews 11 follows and says, for we walk by faith. Quoting, I'm quoting now 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7. We walk by faith, not by sight. But it's all about faith. Faith is the Hebrews 11 chapter, the hall of faith, those who have done things by faith, seeing him who is invisible. That's the message. Hebrew Christians, you can't see him, but this is right now the reality. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence. Verse 14. We've taken a while, that's the introduction. Since then we have. What the writer is saying is this is a present tense, this is a present day reality. His coming is not awaited. It's not like Job. I know one day he'll come. I know my Redeemer will come. He'll stand on the earth. I know he's come. He's come and we have him. He's come and we have him. Can we say that out loud together? He's come and we have him. Since we have what? Since we have who? Who? A great high priest. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is a priest. Have you ever thought of him in that way? More than that, he's a high priest. More than that, he's a great high priest. 
we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. I believe, as Hebrews will go on to declare, this is a reference to Jesus accomplishing his work as high priest in the heavenly tabernacle. That's where we're going. That's where the writer is taking us. There's an earthly tabernacle that Israel saw that you could handle, but there's a heavenly tabernacle, and the earthly is just a copy of the heavenly. Moses was, dis- was called upon to make the tabernacle known, and the way to make it known was by writing out the scriptures in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and that's what he did. But everything that was seen in the seen realm was simply a type and a shadow of a heavenly reality. And the message is this. Just as the high priest went into the earthly, Jesus went into the heavenly and did far more than any earthly high priest ever did. Every earthly high priest went in once a year and their sacrifice was was to be repeated year after year. And there was never a place for them to finish and say, well, I've done it. I've done all that's necessary. No, there's no place to sit down. Jesus, not going every year, but once for all, after his sacrifice, the Bible says, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This Jesus has passed through the heavens. That's that's what it's talking about. He's gone into the very holy of holies, made sacrifice, and that's where he is right now. He, Jesus Christ, is in the immediate presence of God right now at the Father's right hand. Turn to Hebrews 8. I love when you're reading a book and you've been reading a while and you think, uh, okay, that's a lot to take in. What's the main point? Well, I love this about Hebrews. He's, He's writing a lot. And he says, now the main point is this. Okay, if you've been asleep, wake up. This is what I'm trying to get to you. Now the point in what we're saying is this. Look at this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Isn't that what I just said? It's exactly right. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Man set up something on earth, but God had already set up something in heaven, and that's where Jesus is right now, seated. Finished his work in the heavens. There were times in my study this week I just openly wept. This moves me. I hope it unveils something of the heart of God. God has done what is necessary to bring us into his presence all by himself. He wanted that relationship. Now, here's the message. Are you ready? I'm going to roll my sleeves up. Here we go. Here we go. Jesus is now where we wish to be. He's there, and he's seated. And because he's our representative, his presence there guarantees our presence there. If I was a Pentecostal, I'd run around the building (laughs) with my hands in the air. Hear that, hear that. Because he's our representative, his presence there guarantees our presence there. And those he represents are those who one day will be with him. Every one of them. 
there's not a sheep that the shepherd won't save. Our great high priest is not on the outside of the Holy of Holies hoping and trying to get in. He's gone in once and once was enough. He's passed through the heavens. He's made the atoning sacrifice. He's where he needs to be and where he is, we will be. There's no way if you're represented by Jesus Christ, if he's your representative, where he is is where you will be. The song says it this way. While in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No one can say, you, you got to leave. No, while he is standing in heaven, while he remains in heaven, because we're in him, no one, no officer of the court of heaven, no angel, no archangel can say, you don't belong, you got to leave. No, I'm in him. He's my representative. I stand in him. And you've got to throw him out if you're going to throw me out. He represents me. And the father is never going to throw the son out. And I'm in him. And therefore I'm forever saved. You cannot banish me from heaven. Unless you want to throw Jesus out, you'll have to throw me out. It's never going to happen. No tongue can bid me thence depart. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm in my representative. For me to be thrown out, Jesus would first have to be thrown out. But he's there. And he is forever there. Are you ready for this? Here's the staggering truth. In God's sight, you, Christian, are already there. Turn to Ephesians. Again, man with his starting point being off thinks, I'm not that bad and God is not that great. I can climb the mountain of God. If I learn certain laws, if I obey certain things, I'll get there. The message of the Bible is not that man can raise himself up to God, but that God, seeing man from the top of the mountain, sees man dead in the valley below, comes down the mountain, lives the life the man should have lived, dies on the cross for man in man's place, and raises man to be with him in the heavenly places. That's what we see. Verse 1 of chapter 2. And you were almost dead in trespasses and sins. No, no. You were dead in trespasses and sins. What kind of death is he talking about? Well, Paul is writing to Christians here, and he's saying you were dead. Well, they were born and they're still alive. So what's he talking about? He's not talking about physical death. He's not talking about an emotional death. He's not talking about death in your human relationships. Oh, things have gone wrong. She's dead to me. That's not what it's going on. That's not what's going on. You were dead in a spiritual sense. You had no desire for God. No ability to come to him. No want to come to him. You were dead. Greek word necros. It means dead. It means dead like a corpse. 
We have the forbidden thing called necromancy, which is contact with the dead. Necros means dead. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. So he describes the death. It's not a physical death, it's a spiritual death. Death in trespasses and sins. And yet you're walking around. You're, you're like zombies. That's what the dead walking are. Dead men walking, right? It's, you're dead, but you're walking around. So this was your condition, Christians, previous to God's intervention. You were dead, but walking around. That's the description biblically of man in his lost condition. That's the way you were. You were dead in the trespasses and sins, and yet you're walking around. You, you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And it's not just you. It's, it's me, Paul, saying it. we all have, were this way, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the universal message you're dead spiritually, you're walking around, you're in a lost condition, you're under the wrath of God like everybody else. What's the next two words? I'll tell you what aren't the next two words. But man, recognizing his need, when he hears the gospel, says, I want that. No, no, no. What God has to do to save you is amazing. And what you're going to about, read about right now is all God's activity. Monogism, it's monos, one power working. It's not synergy. We've got a problem. We need to synergize. Let's get the team on this. One power working. The next two words. Someone made a pillow of these two words. That's where they lay their head every night. But God. Is that your testimony? but God. I was dead, but God. I was lost, but God. I was under the wrath of God, but God. But God, talking about what he does, being rich, the word there is the word that means mega rich, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, almost a redundancy, verse 5, he's established that, that we're dead and he's making it clear. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, not when there was a little bit of life, but at this, when we were in this condition, when we were dead in our trespasses, spiritual death, look at this, operative word, he, he made us alive together with Christ. We were dead. What can dead men do? Dead men can do nothing except stink. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Well, of course, because we've done nothing. We were dead and God's done his activity. He has raised us up with him. And look at this. Seated us with him. Not will one day seat us with him. Seated us, past tense, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christian. You're in Him, and where He is, there you are. Physically, you're on planet Earth. Physically, you're in Peoria, Arizona, right now. But spiritually speaking, you're in Him who's on the throne. You are seated with Him. Where? In heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. And where is He? On the throne, having sat down. You're sitting in the person who's done all that's necessary for your salvation and has finished the work. 
you were dead, but he made us alive together with Christ. When Christ was raised, you were raised. When he ascended, you ascended. When he sat on the throne, you sat on the throne with him. It's mind-boggling. It would be blasphemous, I think, if we weren't reading it in our Bibles. This is just what the Bible says. You're already there spiritually, and there's no way your physical body won't catch up to where you are. It's going to get there one day. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. If there are Thursdays in heaven, you'll, sit, you'll say, I can't take any more, that's amazing. I can't grasp this, this is, this is too much. But Friday's coming, more grace, whoa! I'm blown away by grace. Saturday's coming, more grace, whoa! It's going to be on and on and on and on and on and on and on for all eternity. You're going to be dazzled by grace. And his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. You're not the source of the faith. You're not the source of the grace. You're not the source of the salvation. All of it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Oh, but there's things we need to do. We're his workmanship now, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Hear this, we're not saved by good works, we're saved for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. People to see, places to go, things for you to do. But none of the things you do gains you what grace has given to you. And let's just keep reading. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, the uncircumcision Gentiles by the circumcision, the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember at that time, You were, at that time, separated from Christ as a Gentile, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You weren't Jews. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. They had the promise, you didn't. Having no hope without God in the world. Why? You had no mediator. But now, in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off, who's he referring to? Gentiles. Have been brought near by the blood of Christ, by the death of Christ. For he himself, oh, is our peace, who has made us both, who's the both? Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both, who's the both? Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There's no more hostility between Jews and Gentiles. The The wall that God erected, remember, has now been abolished through the cross. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off. How did he do it? Through the apostles, through the word that they heard. Do you know when the word is preached, God comes to them. He came and preached peace to you not like the Lord Jesus appeared to the people in Ephesus. No, he went through his messengers. And as the word preached, he came. Through them, preached peace to you who were far off Gentiles and peace to those who were near Jews. That's why the gospel is the same for Jew and Gentile. 
God doesn't say to the, Je the Jews, I've got a different plan of salvation for you. Uh, you'll have your own service in heaven. And then, do you know, we're all going to be around the throne. Abraham, David, Ezekiel, and John the Baptist, and Paul, and Peter. We'll all be in the same service, singing the same song, Worthy is the Lamb, because that's the only way we're saved, by what he did, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all to the glory of God alone. One service, because there's one message of salvation. But through him, we both, who's the both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you, Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens. Don't let them put that tag on you. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Gentiles don't have a lesser standing than Jews. Whew. Go back to Hebrews. Are we going to get through a verse here? Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus! In Hebrews 4, turn to chapter 2, verse 17. Hebrews 2, 17. Therefore, he, talking of Jesus, had to be made like his brothers, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Look at this. Jesus didn't become almost a man. He became God the Son, became a man in the incarnation to fully represent us live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died so that he could become the merciful and faithful high priest once we see this we see it's the incarnation that makes the high priestly ministry of Jesus possible no angel could do this God didn't become an angel to save angels there is no plan of redemption for any fallen angels. Do you get that? God doesn't have to be merciful. There is no picket line in heaven. There's no walking about with placards, placards saying, give redemption to angels. No, if God does what he does with angels and rightly banishes fallen angels away from his presence forever, the righteous angels just say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. But the fact that God became a man to save the sons of men should astound us. He did. His incarnation makes his priesthood possible. No angel could do this. No angel did this, but Jesus did. Jesus, see that word. See that name. Jesus, it's the most important name you ever hear. He's our high priest. Jesus refers to him as man. But don't forget to read the rest of the phrase in Hebrews 4. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, that speaks of him in his manhood. The Son of God speaks of him in his divinity. He's our high priest. We'll never understand what he did until we understand who he is. Jesus, the Son of God. 
let us hold fast our confession. I'll close with this. Our confession here in context means what we say about him. What the word of God teaches about him. Do you know there is content to the Christian faith? One of the early creeds of the church we have in the book of Romans, it's expressed in three words in English. Jesus is Lord. In contrast to Caesar being Lord, Jesus is Lord. You might pay with your life for saying those words in the first century. But that's content. Jesus is Lord. That's a creed. The Latin word credo means I believe. Do you know it matters what you believe? J.C. Ryle once explained it this way, a religion without doctrine or dogma is a thing which many are fond of talking of in the present day. It sounds very nice at first, very fine at first, it looks very pretty at a distance, but the moment we sit down to examine and consider it, we shall find it a simple impossibility. We might as well talk of a body without bones and sinews. No man will ever be anything or do anything in religion unless he believes something. No one ever fights earnestly against the world, the flesh, and the devil unless he has engraven on his heart certain great principles which he believes. End of quote. I believe our confession here is referring to Jesus, who he is. Do you remember Peter made the great confession? You are the Christ, the Messiah. Son of the living God, Matthew 16. Jesus then said, on this rock, on this rock of revelation, I believe, Jesus is building his church. And our confession would be that Jesus is true God and true man. The word confession is the Greek word homologia. It means to say the same as. We're not invited to say what we think, but to say what God says about him in his word. What we confess is called the faith. Here's what we confess. This God-man has made propitiation. He's satisfied the Father's wrath. And he completely understands us in our everyday trials and temptations. Let me finish with this. I'm told, I found out this week, never tried this, but I'm told this, that if you get two pianos in a room and a note is struck on the first piano say middle C or the F or whatever it might be, the same note will gently respond on the second piano, though no one's touching it. There's actually a name for this. You can check it out. Sympathetic resonance. Amazing thought. Christ, in the incarnation, as a man, is like us in every way, he has a body of flesh now and forever. And as I've already said, and as the scripture says, is in heaven right now. And when you're struck, he's struck. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities, scripture says. When we are struck, when a cord is struck in us, it resonates in him. Now, when we see the sheer delight and beauty of this, we can now read verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's not aloof. He's not unaware. 
He's certainly not unconcerned. He feels it all. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He feels what you feel. He's a sympathetic high priest who's like us in every respect apart from sin. We're not going to finish verse 15 or 16, but if we were to read verse 16, it says this, Let us then with confidence, boldness, speech, it really is a word that means speech that is spoken out with confidence and boldness, bold speech. Let us then with bold speech, confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. word throne speaks of a place of all authority. Charles next week will officially sit on his throne. But it's a borrowed throne. Because Jesus is the true king of England. The true king of Europe. The true king of America. The true king of China. The true king of Russia true king of all of this world. He is the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. And because he's our high priest, he has put our name on him as he went into the holy place to make sacrifice for us. And his sacrifice counted in the courts of God. He's passed through the heavens and is now seated. The place of all rule, that's the throne, and yet... It's the place where mercy and grace is extended towards us. It's meted out there. There will be a throne of judgment, but right now, there's a throne of grace and mercy. And let me just finish with this. Do you understand the difference between mercy and grace? Mercy is a wonderful thing. Mercy is that we're not punished as we deserve. A man may be guilty of a crime, and instead of going to prison, the judge has mercy on him and says, you don't need to go to prison for this one. That's mercy. Didn't have to do it. That's mercy. Grace is all that mercy is, but it's much more than that. Grace is saying to the criminal, I know what you've done, but not only am I not going to punish you and send you to prison forever, you can come into my house, eat at my table. Everything I have is yours. That's grace. And this throne, the place of all authority, is a place of mercy and grace. What you need, mercy is available. What you need, grace is available to you in the person of Jesus Christ. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel. Come to him, this risen Savior, who did what was necessary, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, rose again from the dead, is now at the place of all authority in the universe, on the throne. Have you come to him? I plead with you to come if you have not. Repent and believe this good news. What good news? Ladies and gentlemen, we have a great high priest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the unveiling of your word. 
as I pray, write these truths on our hearts and cause us to dance, at least on the inside, now and forever. While in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid us thence depart. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.